Hey, there's my pro start, letting the uh, intro start playing over again. Good morning, everybody. It is Monday, and this is Just Human number 181. I am back. Uh, thank you for thank you for um, being here. And yeah, um, I'm laughing this morning. I am. I'm just I'm just giggling over here um, because I'm just going to get right to it. Welcome to the show. I am giggling because of this. Biden going to Ukraine on President's Day. Like, <laughs> I think this is like the worst thing he could possibly do. Of all the things that President Biden could do on President's Day, going to Kiev, it is, this is so dumb. This is so like who advised him to do this? <laughs> like it just makes me laugh because I I saw this before I went live and I'm like, holy crap! That is that is exactly what I would do if I was the script writer for this stupid movie where we're trying to wake people up. I would take the president who is America last. And I would send him to Kiev on President's Day while I sent Trump to Ohio. Like, this is amazing. This is amazing. And they even had it where he walks in and there's air raid sirens sounding as he's walking around with Zelensky, who's, of course, wearing his, like, olive drab, like, I just got back from the front. And he's walking around with Zelensky and there's air raid sirens playing even though there was nothing to alert the air raid sirens, they just had the air raid sirens play for effect. And like even Reuters reported that, that there was no reason for the air raid sirens, but they were blaring anyway. And there they are hugging. <laughs> oh, this is so funny. Like, yeah, yeah. Jim, like, I don't really get down too much with the whole idea. We're watching a movie. Like I like it. I do entertain that and engage with that expression, but I don't think it's a literal movie with literal actors everywhere and every single thing is scripted and like all of that. I don't believe that, but these are the moments where I'm like, okay, this is a damn movie. This is, this is just hilarious. Joe farted. That's why Zelensky's making that face. Um, just, Do you hear the air raid sirens, Joe? Do you hear them? We're playing them for you. <laughs> like, how how do you see this and not think patriots are in control? Like, how, how do you... How do you see that this is going on and not understand that there is at least some level of profound, significant control that patriots have over things because no, no president, no, no administration would in their right mind would do this on president's day. No, there, no, no. <laughs> this is awesome. This is awesome. Um, I hope, I hope y'all are laughing at it. Like I am. 
I understand people being upset about it and like, you know, he's ignoring Ohio. He shouldn't be going over there to the Ukrainian swamp, but he's very familiar with the Ukrainian swamp. You know, um, it's like a second home to him. So maybe he's going to go over there and, and ask for another prosecutor to be fired. <laughs> like, um, like it's, this is just perfect. Like if you're Biden, you think, think about it. If you're Biden, you want to stay away from Ukraine. You don't want people bringing, you don't want to give people the, the, the launch point to bring up any of your relationship with Ukraine at all. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. And yet there he is on president's day. Ah, oh, this is beautiful. It's make it's, oh, that has, that has given me, given me many endorphins this, this morning. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good morning. Now that I've got that out of the way, and hopefully we've all laughed about it, because what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? You're going to get mad about it? You're going to get mad? Who cares? Like, <laughs> don't get mad about it. Just laugh at it. Um, so now we got that out of the way. I want to say last night we had another episode of Defected, episode 14, and it was a killer episode. And thank you, everybody, who watched it and upvoted it because it is number five on the Rumble leaderboard this morning. So thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed this episode talking with Burning Bright. I enjoyed the Rumble rants and the questions and the comments that people were giving. Um, I was I can't help but read chat while you are talking. I read as I try and tell myself not to uh, because I get distracted from what Burning Bright is saying. But chat was having a good time last night and y'all were contributing and being hilarious. Um, nothing can stop what is coming. Our friends at Badlands Media, they are up at number eight. That is awesome. I think they debuted at number five and they've been kicked down just a little bit, but this is awesome. Seeing Badlands shows regularly make the leaderboard on rumble means a lot to us. Um, I mean, we've only been around as a group since October and the community has been incredibly supportive of us. And it's a small thing to hit the thumbs up button, but man, it really helps out with helping us appear in the algorithm and helping people discover us for the first time. And it's just a, a small boost to us, the host, to see that the people watching decide, yeah, I like this. I'm going to go ahead and hit this thumbs up button. Um, so really appreciate it, guys. It's already almost at 80,000 views. Thank you so much. This episode is a long one. Burning Bright and I have a difficult time shutting up. We have more and more to say the longer we go on. Um, but it was a good episode, and we covered many topics from um, white hats, black hats in control of Biden to talking about Nord Stream, pro or con, U.S. being responsible, um, talking about it from a narrative perspective, 40,000-foot view, talking about destruction of the CIA and setting that up and what things stories could be going on right now and things could be going on right now that set up the eventual destruction of the CIA. Uh, yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground in this episode. And if you like my content, if you've ever watched a defected episode and enjoyed it, then you're going to enjoy this one. I highly recommend it. So thank you guys very much for that. Um, now, 
Oh, y'all are saying 83,000 views. Yeah, when I saw it just now, it was 78. So that's awesome. It's awesome. Y'all are so great. Um, Something else y'all are great for. I want to say the response to my latest Substack has been phenomenal. It's got tons of comments, tons of likes, and the feedback has been just amazing. Um, so thank you guys very much for that. Um, I enjoyed writing this Substack. It was it was great to dig on. I really dug into it, um, into the material, and did the work to turn it into a an article. Um, and the response has just been amazing. And I want to get to, as part of that response, um, somehow, and I, I, whoever it was, however this reached um, these guys, um, thank you very much, because it eventually reached the eyes of the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers, who uh, you some, most of you probably know, they, um, they used to work at the Clinton Foundation, it's Doyle and Moynihan, and uh, they had their Twitter suspended not too long ago. Um, but they still have the Twitter handle for their foundation right here, their whistleblower Twitter Twitter handle. They lost their personal ones, I believe. So they found my Substack, and they read it, and they wrote this mini thread here, which I'm going to present to you, and I'm going to totally admit up front, it's a humble brag from me because it makes me feel so good, but there's something on the back end of it that I want to set up and introduce to you. I talked about this on Defected. And I want to present it to you this morning as a uh, a way to encourage everyone. So they wrote that we closely observe developments and revealing info that directly or and or indirectly impact our efforts as Clinton Foundation whistleblowers and the case ongoing in the U.S. tax court, Doyle Moynihan versus IRS. All details of this are in our pinned tweet. We want to give major props to me, just human who recently penned an incredible thread on his Substack, which leads us to understand why the New York Times seems to be increasingly nervous about John Durham. And they link my article. Now that's right there is awesome, but it gets even better. Serious students will want to get an extra coffee and take your time to navigate that full thread. Those among us who appreciate Cliff Notes will appreciate that cases within that thread center on the following criminal violations. 18 U.S. Code 641, public money or property. And I went over that. It has to do with the selling and monetizing and exchanging for value of public property. And 18 U.S. Code 793, gathering, transmitting, or losing defense information. This is serious. With full credit to Just Human, he writes, The accidental discovery the case I had accidentally found while searching for the super secret Spygate case was... 20-SC-3361-ZMF, the sixth email account disclosure case, filed January 5th, 2021. The case I found that is connected to it, 121MC-00-91-ZMF, is the New York Times case, asking for further unsealing in the sixth email accounts case. They wanted the Justice Department to unseal the application for the records and everything else. The Times was successful in getting unsealed much, not all, but much, of the docket for the case titled Application for USA USA for 2703D, Order for Six Email Accounts, Serviced by Google for Investigation of Violations of 18 USC 641 and 793. Those criminal violations referenced are very serious, as the thread highlights. They appear to be central 
to the entire Clinton-related legal case. Thank you, Justice Human, for your tremendous work in drawing attention to these cases. Well, you're very welcome, and I enjoyed it, and I'm glad they found it, but it gets even better. It gets even better. I wrote back and thanked them for noticing, and they replied back to me with three American flags, quote tweeting, Rothbard 1776 from October 26, 2021. And here he confirms that John Durham has interviewed the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers who have testified before Congress and blew the whistle in multiple decades of malfeasance, corruption, tax evasion, and more. They have all the evidence in detailed chronological order. And then he reminds everybody, how did Al Capone get busted? It was for tax evasion, wasn't it? Now, I want to temper how much I read into this, but for me, what I get at a minimum is that the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers are encouraged by what I found in this case and how it relates to what's going on with the Clintons. And that encourages them, which encourages me even more. But then for them to remind me, which I had, I had forgotten about this, that John Durham had interviewed the whistleblowers about the Clintons' corruption. And that what I found in this connects back to that in their minds. Um, I mean, that's, that's just awesome. And it encourages me. It, you know, it put me on a even higher cloud than I was already on. Um, and I hope it does the same for y'all that, you know, there's these little signs. I was talking to BB last night. There's these signs here and there of this undercurrent of justice that doesn't make all the headlines. And you have, you have to dig through all the fake news and through the clickbait and rage bait and all that other stuff and all the dooming and you got to clear all that out and find the evidence of the swamp draining and find the evidence of the justice that is, that is happening or that it's on the way. And you can find it. You can find that evidence that it's there. You just won't see it in the headlines. Um, so yeah, I'm encouraged by that. And again, thank you to everybody um, who read my sub stack and shared it and to the Clinton Foundation whistleblowers for their very kind words. Now, my friend Brian Cates also reached out to me on uh, True Social. And actually, I should have grabbed his... Let me grab... I want to grab what his comments were. And then he linked this article, which also adds more information to what I shared. Hold on just a moment. We're going to scroll my Twitter. Luckily, I haven't tweeted all that much um, over the weekend since Brian did this. There we go. So my friend Brian Cates left me some comments on true social, which are pretty interesting in regards to my article. He said, so the New York times is furiously working in the courts, trying to get the federal prosecutors who were secretly surveilling four of their reporters, email accounts via a grand jury subpoena and a gag order to cough up why their reporters were investigated and why the DOJ is working so hard to discover their sources. 
You know where else a years-long federal grand jury issuing subpoenas for gag orders hiding federal grand jury surveillance popped up two years ago? It was right here. Suspected congressional leakers were secretly being investigated by the DOJ. And surprisingly enough, the same names keep popping up. Lichtblau, Goldman, Schmidt, Barlett, all neck deep in the mid-year exam, the mid-year exam cover-up at the FBI, all neck deep in the Russiagate leaks that turned out to all be a hoax, and several still currently involved in the fake leaks about the Durham Special Counsel investigation being seeded through the IC-controlled fake news media. Yes, these same journalists that featured in my article are the same ones who are crying about Durham right now, trying to get ahead of it. And this is a piece that Brian Cates wrote back on June 22nd, 2021. Suspected congressional leakers were secretly being investigated by DOJ all along. Two prominent Democrat politicians who sit on the House Intelligence Committee, or did, have alerted the news media that they were informed by the Apple Corporation back on May 5th that their phone records had been targeted by a subpoena issued by a grand jury as part of a federal investigation into criminal leaking of classified material. Apple said in a, in a released statement that a non-disclosure order from a federal judge prevented them for more than three years from alerting any of the affected phone and email accounts that their records had been accessed by the federal, federal grand jury. Both Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell stated in media interviews how shocked they were to discover that federal prosecutors would even think of allowing a grand jury to subpoena their private phone data. Both men professed outrage at the invasion of their privacy, and congressional Democrats are now angrily calling for Attorney Generals Jeff Session and William Barr to be brought in to answer questions, along with former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. The validity of both the subpoenas and the evidence upon which they are based or were based are loudly being called into question, something that has already led to the Department of Justice Inspector General Horowitz to review the matter, to ensure that all proper steps and regulations were followed, while these congressmen, their staff, several family members, and media reporters were spied on by this federal grand jury. Remember who told you this was happening. Ponder this for a minute, if you will. The entire time, much of the conservative media was in high outrage, loudly wondering why Schiff and Swalwell and other members of Congress were being investigated in relation to the obvious politically motivated leaking of classified material that was going on. There was already an investigation underway that involved a federal grand jury that was issuing surveillance subpoenas. And the GOJ never announced any of this. In the face of overwhelming hostile media coverage, Jeff Sessions never said one word about members of Congress being targets of federal leak probes. William Barr didn't either. Neither did Rod Rosenstein. To seriously ask the question, why wouldn't Sessions, Barr, or Rosenstein tip off members of Congress and media reporters that they were subjects of federal criminal leak investigations is to answer it. And yet I've spent three years watching people babble on my TV, now five, and in live interviews about how outrageous it was that nobody was investigating Schiff and Swalwell. And the reporters they were allegedly leaking to, because obviously, if there was an investigation of them, the DOJ would have told us and the targets of the investigation, right? How spot on Brian was in this article. 
and how informative it is now with my Substack and the case that we have. And little did Brian know, he had no idea at the time. Look at the date. This is June 22nd, 2021. And my article features a case right here at the New York Times file to unseal from June 8th, 2021. So at the time when Brian is writing about, hey, we've just been alerted that there was a grand jury that was investigating Schiff and Swalwell. That was at the same time that we learned there was a grand jury that was investigating those journalists. And we just had Schiff and Swalwell kicked off of the House Intel Committee. And I pondered when it happened not too long ago, I pondered what if that's what Durham has been waiting for is that he needed the house Intel committee and the Senate Intel committee committee cleaned up a bit before he could proceed because there are too many leaks. It might be, that might be the circumstance for him and for other investigations. They had a hard time proceeding when they know that this committee that has all this oversight and this line of sight into their investigations would leak it. Well, these two things happened at the same time, but I don't know that anybody connected them because it wasn't immediately apparent that they were connected. <clears throat> appreciate that and also appreciate um Codepont um or Codu Point. Um I don't know how he likes to have his name pronounced, but he's on True Social. Um I always think Codepont like a French name, but what regardless. This article from Real Clear Investigations is very good. Um and it goes into how the New York Times hasn't learned anything. And they still peddle their, they use the same tactics to, um, well, what am I, what am I doing? I should just read it. Let me see. Special counsel, this, this also goes to the other side of my article in regards to the journalist. Special counsel John Durham, this is Aaron Matei. This is Aaron Matei writing. If you know who that is, it's just remarkable where we've come to and what Donald Trump has done to everyone in waking people up to the existence of the Uniparty and the compromised press and bringing people who would disagree on several different policy issues but have agreement on the pursuit of truth and the exposure of corruption and lies and bad journalism it's it's ama- it's amazing to uh to see how things have changed you know um anyway special counsel john durham leading a multi-year probe of how us intelligence officials conducted the russia investigation has yet to issue its final report but according to the new york times durham has already come up empty 
Durham's team, the Times declared in a widely circulated, circulated January 26th article, has gone unsuccessfully down one path after another and ultimately failed to find wrongdoing in the origins of the Russia inquiry. The three bylined reporters, Carly Savage, Adam Goldman, who's one of those that was being looked at by DOJ, and Katie Binner, based their conclusions on a month-long review, including interviews with more than a dozen current and former officials and also the defense attorneys of people that Durham has put before grand jury. Yet a review of the trio's reporting shows that the Times is still engaging in the same journalistic behavior that has made the paper a reliable disseminator of discredited innuendo about a conspiracy between Donald Trump and Russia. By omitting countervailing information and distorting the available facts, the Times article does not set the record straight. Instead, it attempts to write off the Durham probe before its findings have been released and whitewashes Russiagate's key actors in the FBI and Clinton campaign long after they have been exposed. The article fits into a larger larger pattern of malfeasance in the Times Russiagate coverage, which RCI, Real Clear Investigations, has documented and the Columbia Journalism Review recently highlighted. That series of articles is excellent at the Columbia Journalism Review. RCI found, among other shortcomings, a failure to correct clear errors, the use of misleading language to minimize and sanitize the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, and the refusal to acknowledge broader missteps, especially those involving anonymous sources who turned out to be deceitful. The Times failures are especially consequential because of the newspaper's unique role in framing broader news narratives. That its Russiagate reporting shared journalism's highest honor, the Pulitzer Prize, underscores a media dysfunction that extends beyond this single influential organization. The Times' attempt to cast doubt on the Durham probe has sparked a backlash that the newspaper has actively promoted. The Times' Savage, Charlie Savage, followed up on his co-byline January 26th story by reporting that House Democrats Ted Lieu and Daniel Goldman, citing alarming disclosures in a recent New York Times article, are demanding a Justice Department investigation into Durham's inquiry. Savage also noted that Richard, that Richard Durbin, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has floated the possibility of oversight hearings that be into Durham. This week, the Times published an op-ed from Neil Katyal, an acting solicitor general in the Obama administration, which argued that Attorney General Merrick Garland can discipline and fire Durham if the special counsel fails to provide an adequate explanation for the Times' recent revelations. Katyal also urged Garland to consider refusing to make the Durham report public. The Italian job. The paper's headline grabbing takeaway is that the Durham inquiry, rather than uncovering anything like the deep state plot alleged by Trump, instead opened a criminal investigation into suspicious financial dealings related to the former president himself. The matter is said to have emerged during a trip by Durham and the attorney general who appointed him, William Barr, to Italy, where local officials offered a potentially explosive tip linking Mr. Trump to certain suspected financial crimes. According to the Times, the extraordinary fact that Mr. Durham opened a criminal investigation that included scrutinizing Mr. Trump 
has remained secret. The Times' extraordinary claim is not supported by its own reporting. Not only has Durham never filed charges, the Times admits, it also remains unclear what level of an investigation it was, what steps he took, and what he learned. The Times then claims that this criminal inquiry fueled a garbled echo of news reports making the erroneous assumption that the criminal investigation opened by Durham targeted U.S. officials rather than Trump himself. But the Times' suggestive claims have instead fueled a garbled echo of erroneous assumptions that Durham's inquiry led to a criminal investigation into Trump himself, as a Daily Beast bombshell headline put it. Barr rejected the Times reporting in an interview with the Los Angeles Times. The Italy trip, Barr said, was not directly about Trump and only became a part of Durham's inquiry because it did have a relationship to the Russiagate stuff. Ultimately, Barr says, it turned out to be a complete non-issue. By embellishing the circumstances surrounding the Italy matter, the Times gave its audience the opposite impression, and rather than grapple with Barr's comments, Savage spun them as a vindication. Barr, quote, confirmed that there was an investigation involving Trump that Durham handled, the Timesman told MSNBC. So that's interesting. We didn't have anyone on the record confirming that before, and so that was nice of him. Savage did not respond to RCI's request for comment, nor did the other two reporters on the January January 26th article. A Times spokesperson said the newspaper paper stands behind this story and the reporting it contains. The indirectly funded dossier. While falsely suggesting that Durham launched a criminal investigation of Trump for, quote, suspicious financial dealings, the Times downplays the suspicious dealings of the Hillary Clinton campaign in spreading Trump-Russia conspiracy theories and how the FBI handled them. Start with the Steele dossier, the collection of Trump-Russia fabrications authored by former British spy Christopher Steele, paid for by the Clinton campaign, and heavily relied upon by the FBI, which the Times tepidly describes as, quote, opposition research indirectly funded by the Clinton campaign. That's a spin right there, man. In fact, the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee directly funded the dossier by funneling more than a million dollars through their law firm, Perkins Coie, which in turn hired Steele's client, Fusion GPS. To conceal this arrangement, the Steele money was earmarked as legal services and legal and compliance consulting, and thereby protected by attorney-client privilege. Last year, the Federal Election Commission fined the Clinton campaign $113,000 for hiding the backdoor payments. The Steele dossier itself was not traditional political opposition research, which implies dirt, at least somewhat grounded in fact, but a highly consequential work of fiction. Durham shed considerable light on this when he indicted for lying to the FBI one of Steele's main purported sources, Igor Danchenko, a Russian expat connected to Democratic Party politics through the Brookings Institution. The Times tells readers that Durham brought a demonstrably weak case that ultimately failed. While Danchenko was acquitted, his prosecution brought to light embarrassing facts about the FBI's conduct, which the Times' dismissive summary ignores. According to the Times account, Danchenko merely told the FBI that the dossier exaggerated the credibility of gossip and speculation. 
This is false. Danchenko explicitly told the FBI that corroboration for the dossier's claims was zero. That he had no idea where claims sourced to him came from. And that the Trump-Russia rumors he passed along to Steele came from, quote, word of mouth and hearsay, including alcohol-lubricated conversations with friends. The Times also ignores court documents showing that Steele's dossier most salacious allegation that Russia possessed a lurid blackmail tape of President Trump originated with embellishing tidbits passed on by Charles Dolan, a longtime Democratic Party operative with close ties to Bill and Hillary Clinton. Another of Danchenko's purported subsources, Sergei Milyan, was not was also not Russian. Moreover, the evidence in the trial showed that he and Danchenko never spoke. And for the FBI, the Times describes its reliance on the Steele dossier as a matter of having, quote, used claims from what turned out to be a dubious source in its botched application to wiretap a former Trump campaign aide, Carter Page. The Times adds that the FBI's wiretap request contained, quote, errors and omissions that again downplays what is already well established. The FBI relied on the Steele dossier to spy on Page while concealing from the, F- from the FISA court that approved the warrant that the Clinton campaign had paid for it. Moreover, the FBI presented Steele as a credible source, even though, as the Justice Department Inspector General later determined, it was, quote, unable to corrob- corroborate any of the substantive allegations that made about Page, which the FBI relied on. Not only did the FBI fail to corroborate Steele dossier, it also hid from the FISA court information that contradicted its outlandish allegations. The Times' only nod to the FBI's malfeasance is made in passing when it notes that Durham secured a conviction of an FBI lawyer it is not identified by name. That would be Kevin Kleinsmith, who, quote, doctored an email in a way that kept one of those problems from coming to light. Durham has also revealed that the FBI was aware as early as January 2017 that Danchenko was lying to bureau agents. <clears throat> but instead of informing the FISA court and withdrawing their efforts to spy on Page, the FBI brass instead made Danchenko a confidential human source, thereby ins- insulating him from legal and congressional scrutiny. While keeping his identity secret, the FBI falsely told Congress that Danchenko, quote, did not cite any significant concerns with the way his reporting was characterized in the dossier, according to declassified talking points, prepared for a 2018 Senate briefing. The FBI paid Danchenko more than $200,000 for his services. Danchenko wasn't the only recipient of the FBI's largesse. At trial, Durham revealed that the FBI in October 2016 offered Steele a million-dollar payment if he could prove the dossier's allegations. Having no evidence on offer, Steele declined the opportunity. Despite Steele's refusal to substantiate his material, the FBI still relied on it to file its first surveillance warrant on page just over two weeks later, and then three more renewals after that. Um, By the way, I want to comment right now that... um, Carter Page had sued James Comey and a number of other people um, years back, and it got it got thrown out. I want to say a couple months ago, and he's appealed it um, just recently. He's uh, filed an appeal to a higher court, 
So anyway, Carter Page isn't giving up. He's still going after all those people. And um, it's an interesting lawsuit. It's interesting. It's one of those things that exists that could provide more insight and evidence and testimony and depositions, excuse me, that can be used in other things. Durham's dubious sources. After downplaying the FBI's fraudulent reliance on the Steele dossier, the Times accuses Durham of relying on, quote, dubious sources of his own. Isn't that rich? And the Times telling Durham wanted to use sketchy Russian intelligence memos. We know what that means. To pursue the theory that the Clinton campaign conspired to frame Trump. The memos were reportedly hacked by Dutch intelligence and passed on to the CIA. But the Times' lone purported example of Durham's supposed reliance on these dubious sources concerns the FBI's Clinton email server investigation, which is separate from the Trump-Russia probe. One of the supposed Russian sources, Russian memos, is said to claim that Attorney General Loretta Lynch pledged to go easy on the Clinton on Clinton campaign in that, or on Hillary Clinton in that investigation. The Times presents no evidence that Durham took this alleged Russian document at face value. He may well have been pursuing the matter to confirm what the FBI did not, whether the document's claims were a fake. According to previously declassified U.S. intelligence, another purported Russian memo is said to describe American citizens discussing Hillary Clinton's approval of a plan to falsely link Trump to Russia hacking, quote, as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private private mail server. The Times does not provide any evidence that Durham used this memo to pursue a theory about a Clinton plot to frame Trump. It nonetheless tries to suggest that, all while asserting that, quote, some U.S. analysts believe the Russia may have deliberately seeded the memos with this information. Beyond citing unspecified people with familiar people familiar with the matter, the Times also presents no evidence for this claim. The Times also admits critical public information that challenges its efforts to dismiss the memos as disinformation. In September 2020, then-Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe declassified material related to the Russian memos claims about a Clinton plan to tie Trump to Russia. The U.S. intelligence community, Ratcliffe stressed, quote, does not know the accuracy of this allegation or the extent to which it may reflect exaggeration or fabrication by Russia. But Ratcliffe also stated, Quote, to be clear, this is not Russian disinformation. It has not been assessed as such by the intelligence community. <clears throat> and if U.S. intelligence officials doubted the memo's credibility as the Times asserted, their actions did not reflect it. According to his handwritten notes, then-CIA director John Brennan apparently took the assertion of a Clinton plot to frame Trump so seriously that he briefed President Obama and other top officials about it in July 2016. In early September 2016, the CIA followed up by submitting an investigative referral to the FBI regarding what it described as Hillary Clinton's approval of a plan concerning U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russian hackers, hampering U.S. elections as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private mail server. The redacted referral makes reference to gleaning this information from an exchange, which could refer to Russia intercepting contacts between Democratic operatives. It seems unlikely that the head of the CIA would feel compelled to brief the president 
and then submit an investigative referral to the FBI if his agency saw the memos as the Times described them as dubious and lacking credibility. When asked about the Russian claims in October 2020, Brennan left the possibility open that there were accurate they they were accurate but insisted that there would be nothing at all illegal about Clinton trying to highlight the reported connections between Trump and Russia. Hmm. That's an interesting way to that's interesting. All right. Echoing Brennan, the Times also tries to minimize the alleged Russian intercepted Clinton plot by asserting that, quote, there were many reasons that suspicions about the Trump campaign were arising in July 2016, including what the paper calls Trump's flattery of President Vladimir Putin. It seems equally unlikely that if FBI Director Jim Comey, who directly received the CIA's referral, believed the memos were Russian disinformation, he would have declined the opportunity to say so. Yet when questioned about the matter in September 2020 Senate hearing, Comey was conspicuously forgetful. The CIA referral concerning a Clinton plot to tie Trump to Russia, Comey testified, doesn't ring any bells with me. In the Times presentation, Durham's effort to look into this matter somehow parallels the FBI spying on Carter Page. Yet while the Department of Justice Inspector General uncovered at least 17 significant errors or omissions, in the FBI's page surveillance applications. The Times does not point to a single impropriety in Durham's actions. If anything, the known details surrounding the Russian memo's claim of a Clinton plot raise new questions about how senior intelligence officials handled the Russia investigation. Having received explicit warnings at the highest level that the Clinton campaign may be conspiring to falsely tie Russia and Trump, the FBI nonetheless launched investigations of Trump and associates as Russian conspirators. Team Clinton's odd alpha data. In the Russians, if the Russians did fabricate the intelligence of an elaborate Clinton effort to paint Trump as a Russian conspirator, they were remarkably prescient. When Brennan briefed Obama in July 2016 about a purported Clinton plot to link Trump to Russia, the Clinton campaign was in the early weeks of funding the Steele dossier, and by the time the FBI was handed the CIA referral about Clinton's alleged machinations in early September, a parallel Clinton-backed plot was also in action. Almost like that referral was accurate. According to court records filed by Durham, Clinton's Perkins Coie attorney Michael Sussman and Mark Elias were actively involved in an elaborate effort starting in July 2016 to disseminate baseless and likely fraudulent allegations about covert contacts between Trump and Russia's Alpha Bank. After receiving documents and data provided by Sussman, the FBI investigated the theory but found it to be baseless. Here again, the Times deploys its rhetorical energies to obscuring the known facts. In the Times rendering, Sussman, quote, relayed a tip to the FBI about, quote, odd internet data that a group of data scientists contended could reflect hidden communications between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank of Russia. The Times then faults Durham for using the case to, quote, make public large amounts of information insinuating what Mr. Durham never charged, that Clinton campaign associates conspired to gin up an FBI investigation into Mr. Trump based on knowingly false allegation. Yet, 
Durham hasn't charged that yet. At Sussman's trial, the Times says, quote, Prosecutors presented no evidence that he or campaign officials had believed the data scientist complex theory was false. It is correct that Durham did not obtain admissions from Sussman and other campaign officials to defrauding the FBI. But the Times fails to mention that evidence presented at trial indicates the data scientist who formulated the AlphaBank story had strong misgivings about it, at a minimum. According to court records filed by Durham, a technology executive named Rodney Joffe tasked researchers to, quote, mine Internet data to establish an inference and narrative, tying then-candidate Trump to Russia. Joffe hoped to please certain VIPs, i.e. his lawyer Sussman's mutual clients in the Clinton campaign. Joffe was personally eyeing a top cybersecurity position after Clinton's expected electoral victory. The researchers expressed misgivings about the project. One team member relayed continued doubt about the Trump or Alpha conspiracy theory and worried that it was not driven by data, but by bias against Trump. In reducing the question of deliberate fabrication to whether Clinton campaign operatives, quote, believe the data scientist complex theory was false, the Times also admits that Durham was barred from presenting evidence about the FBI agent's assessment. At trial, presiding Judge Christopher Cooper, an appointee of President Obama, ruled that Durham team could not argue that the Alpha Bank data was fabricated unless Sussman's defense team raised the issue first. Sussman's lawyers, unsurprisingly, did not. Accordingly, when FBI agent Curtis Hyde testified that he thought the Alpha Bank story may have been fabricated, Judge Cooper struck it from the record. And prosecutors attempted to present a report authored by two other agents, which concluded that the Alpha Bank might have Alpha Bank story might have been fabricated. Cooper ordered it redacted. And when one of the report's co-authors, FBI cybercrime specialist Scott Hellman, testified, Cooper decreed that quote I will not allow him to talk about whether it's fabricated or spoofed. Hellman was nonetheless allowed to share his view that whoever drafted a document laying out the Alpha Bank theory quote was suffering from some mental disability. One of the most memorable lines from that trial. In a court filing, Durham prosecutors also noted that while the FBI, quote, did not reach an ultimate conclusion regarding whether the Alpha Bank data might have been genuine, spoofed, altered, or fabricated, CIA analysts found that the Alpha data, quote, was not technically plausible, did not withstand technical scrutiny, contained gaps, conflicted with itself, and was user-created and not machine-tool-created. In other words, it was bullshit. (laughs) Because the Times oddly reduced the question of Alpha Bank fabrication to whether Clinton campaign officials admitted to it, none of this information was mentioned. The story ignored the views of virtually everyone else involved. According to the Times, the Sussman trial also showed that Clinton and her campaign manager, Robbie Mook, did not want him to make the Alpha Bank information to the FBI. Did not want him to take the Alpha Bank information to the FBI. That assertion is at odds with the omitted fact unearthed by Durham that Sussman billed the Clinton campaign for, quote, all or nearly all of his work on the Alpha Bank project. Sussman's September 2016 meeting with FBI lawyer Jim Baker, where he relayed the Alpha Bank tip and even provided data purporting to prove it, was charged 
to Clinton for, quote, work and communications regarding a confidential project. By the way, I, I've talked about this before. The reason that the Clinton campaign did not want him to take the Alpha Bank information to the FBI was because they knew the FBI would investigate it and figure out that it was BS. And they knew that the friends they had within the FBI were not in the position of powers they needed them to be in in order to advance a fake investigation based on the Alpha Bank. Um, that's why there's two FBI's there's two FBI's and they knew they couldn't get this to the FBI that would actually do what they wanted to do with it. As an aside, the times briefly notes that the Clinton campaign hoped that Sussman quote would persuade reporters to write articles about alpha bank. That's what they wanted. They wanted it to be a media narrative campaign where just the accusation, the narrative did damage. But this downplays that the Clinton campaign, through its operatives at Fusion GPS, the D.C.-based opposition research firm that also employed Steele, actively coordinated with friendly journalists to disseminate it. Slate's Franklin, Franklin Foyer shared drafts of this story with Fusion, which in turn instructed him that it was time to hurry. When Foyer complied and published his story, the Clinton campaign pretended that the article was an independently reported bombshell, hiding their role in bringing it to life. The Times' attempt to minimize the Clinton role in the Alpha Bank story also ignores the fact that the campaign fought a Durham subpoena for communications between Fusion and Joffe. To make their case, the Steele dossier sponsors claimed that the records were protected by attorney-client privilege. Even though Durham's final report has yet to be, yet to be released, the Times declares that his, quote, hunt for evidence to uncover intelligence abuses in the Russia probe has failed. The Times invokes the public findings of DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz, who, it claims, found no evidence that FBI actions were politically motivated and determined that the Bureau had a solid basis for law to lawfully open the Trump-Russia collusion probe. But the Times omits what Horowitz also acknowledged, that his probe was constrained by government rules that forced him to rely on the word of the officials he investigated. In the case of the FBI surveillance applications on Carter Page, Horowitz reported that his team did, quote, not find documentary or testimonial evidence of intentional misconduct, yet also noted that, quote, we did not receive satisfactory explanations for the errors or problems we identified. And while Horowitz concluded that the FBI stated grounds for opening the Trump-Russia probe, a vague trip that a Trump campaign volunteer was told the Russians have dirt on Clinton and Barack Obama were sufficient, he attributed that judgment to the Justice Department's, quote, low threshold for predication. As Horowitz further told Congress, quote, the activities we found here don't vindicate anybody. <clears throat> Durham has publicly dissented from Horowitz's findings on the matter of predication, how the FBI case was opened, and noted that his investigation is not limited to developing information from within component parts of the Justice Department. Rather than wait for Durham to deliver his findings, the Times is instead echoing the narratives of intelligence officials who assure us that they acted by the book. The Times' extensive omission of countervailing information and deployment of disingenuous framing is in line with its Pulitzer Prize-winning coverage of the Trump-Russia investigation. Yes, it is. In the most blatant episode 
The Times reported in February 2017 that U.S. investigators had obtained phone records and intercepted calls of Trump associates having, quote, repeated contacts with senior Russian intelligence officials in the year before the election. Four months later, FBI Director Jim Comey testified that his this allegation was, quote, not true. The classified notes show that Peter Strzok, the lead FBI agent on the Trump-Russia probe, called the Times story, quote, misleading and inaccurate. The Times has nonetheless stood by it. Having failed to reckon with dubious sourcing, the Times now renews it. While cast by the Times as an authoritative review, the January 26th article relies extensively on what it describes as, quote, people familiar with the matter, a catchphrase used 10 times. In his sweeping expose of the U.S. media's Russiagate coverage for the Columbia Journalism Review, former Times investigative reporter Jeff Gerth found that the paper used that same language over a thousand times in stories involving Trump and Russia between October 2016 and the end of his presidency. In the lone instant when the Times got someone on the record to criticize Durham in the January 26th article, the Times obscures his conflict of interest. Attorney Robert Luskin is described as having, quote, represented two witnesses Mr. Durham interviewed. But the Times does not mention who at least one of those witnesses is. Stephen Halper, a longtime CIA operative who served as an FBI informant in its surveillance of the Trump campaign. The Times begins and ends its January 26th article with another rewriting of history. Whereas Trump and others assert that Mueller found, quote, no collusion with Russia, the Times declares, quote, the reality was more complex. Mueller's final report, the Times asserts, quote, detailed numerous links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. But these vague, non-defined, numerous links turned up no evidence of a coordinated effort between the Trump campaign and Russia to steal the 2016 election. This is why the Mueller team ultimately concluded that it, quote, did not establish that the Trump campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government. The Times also claims that the Mueller report established both how Moscow had worked to help Mr. Trump win and how his campaign had expected to benefit from the foreign interference. As RCI has previously reported, the Mueller team did not establish anything about Russian meddling, beyond that a Russian troll farm spent a minuscule amount of money on juvenile social media ads that were barely about the election. The Mueller report and the subsequent disclosures also provided considerable evidence to undermine the Times' assertion, particularly on the foundational allegation of Russia's alleged theft of Democrat Party emails. And if Trump's campaign expected to benefit from alleged Russian meddling, then it was joined by virtually everyone else, from the Clinton campaign to the New York Times, who recognized that embarrassing emails about the Democratic presidential candidate would only benefit her rival. In the Times' view, acknowledging these facts amount to a, quote, distortion of the Russia investigation's complex findings. A more rational inference is that the Times' complex efforts to distort the available evidence underscore that the paper of record has not reckoned with the Mueller probe findings that demolished the Trump-Russia conspiracy theories it amplified. 
In his CJR review of the U.S. media's Rushgate reporting, Jeff Girth concludes that the Times and other outlets have consistently failed to, quote, report facts that run counter to the prevailing narrative. This conduct, he warned, marks, quote, the erosion of journalistic norms and adds to people's distrust about the media. With its elaborate attempt to dismiss the Durham probe before its findings have been released, the Times has only added a new chapter to a long-running deception. Boom. Awesome article by Aaron Matei. Awesome article. I hope you guys like that as much as I did. Um, and it brings me around to want to mention, by the way, um, RL Skeeter and uh, DM Wilson. Thank you very much for the rumble rants. Much appreciated guys. Um, it brings me around to um, want to jump to something that uh, me and Brian, well, I went I, in response that I wrote to Brian in response. Well, it wasn't in response to Brian. It was in response to uh, a question from Von Hitch. So I really liked that article. I hope you guys did too. I know it was very long, but... It, that's a thorough refutation of what the times is doing. And it exposed, I mean, that's, it exposes to you how the times smears things and spin things and contorts things and twists them in order to advance a narrative that is beneficial to them and their interest and their friend's interest. And if you're a casual reader of the news and you read the New York times article, which I presented on this show back when it came out, Those things would not be apparent to you unless you have that other inter that the countervailing information, unless you know you can recognize when the Times is telling you the truth or not, how they're spinning something. Um, that's often what I mean by when I say put your filter on or have, develop a good filter for reading the news. There's value in reading the New York Times articles, as I've shown you. There's value in reading it because you can extract some idea of what's going on. You can find some factoids in the Times reporting, but you have to separate that from all of their spin and all of their contortions. You can also find some factoids, factoids or indicators in what they don't say, what they don't report, where they obviously are set up to report. So it's like you take that times article and you take the Aaron Matei article and you can learn how the times works. And then you can apply what you learned to reading other articles. So, um, great article by Aaron Matei. He's so good. So Von Hitch, great follow on true social. He posts really cool cars. Dude's an artist. Um, he asked who the, who's the next indictment. So Brian, and it was in response to that same article, that Aaron Matei article. Um, so Brian said, looking at everything from 40,000 foot view, Durham was, has two ways to go with his next move. HRC campaign or the FBI. 
we're also assuming he drops only one indictment. If he goes HRC campaign, go for Hillary. If he goes FBI, go Comey. Outside chance, John Brennan. These are just guesses. Those are those are Brian's guesses. Now, longtime viewers of my show and readers of mine will know that I completely 100% disagree with Comey as a possibility. Uh, like, not even a chance that Comey gets indicted. Not even a chance. Um, because he's not who the, the media on the right have been telling you he is. Um, but I replied to this, if I can find it. Because Vaughn got me thinking. Where is my reply? It would be great if True Social fixed their thread so it's stacked properly. That'd be really cool. So keep in mind what we've read so far this morning with some of that information. Um, who's next for Durham? Here are some thoughts. Here's some of my thoughts. McGonagall. Who we're going to take a look at here in a minute. McGonagall was indicted in both DC and the SDNY. The DC investigation and the subsequent indictment appears to have been triggered by an ex-lover contacting the FBI. That, as far as we know, that's what happened. A scorned lover who, who McGonagall dumped got upset and went to the FBI and told him about how he was having an affair with her and he was spoiling her and had lots of money and lots of cash on hand and it was all kind of strange. And the D.C. indictment deals with him being paid off by the Albanians. But the SDNY investigation and indictment, what set that off? It seems to me, it seems to me that it's ripe for Durham to have picked that fruit. After all, it's Deripaska whom McGonagall was working for, just like almost everyone else in the Russia's, Russiagate spygate world. So did Durham hand that one off to the SDNY at some point? It seems possible. If true, then I suspect Durham did so because he has something larger in mind and or something that targets a different area of the conspiracy. He can let DOJ handle McGonagall while he focuses on something else. I want it to be a RICO indictment. And Adam Small being on the team indicates that that's possible. Another thought I am bouncing around is that Durham has let some work fall to DOJ and Treasury while he waits for the House to be cleaned, namely Schiff and Swalwell off the Intel Committee, which just happened. Think about who has been indicted in the past two years. Deripaska, Vexelberg, McGonagall. Durham can gather a lot of evidence from those cases while he builds other cases. The anxiety, the spinning, the smearing that the media and the Dems are displaying recently in regards to Durham indicates to me that what Durham brings next will be catastrophic to them. And I look at all that stuff, and as I was talking about on Defected last night, you have all these indicators 
um, of justice happening and things moving towards a really bad result for the swamp. And I see things like this McGonagall indictment and Derbert Posca and Vexelberg and Durham doesn't really need to handle those cases himself. He can let DOJ handle them. They develop evidence and he can use that evidence in the RICO case he eventually builds or in some other case. And I was also thinking about this. So if you search the drops for Amanda Renteria, who we get the Renteria memo from, what you get, this first one right here, okay, over on the right, it's drop 1550. So it's a quote drop, right? So this first drop inside here is 1465. And let me zoom in a bit for y'all on the screen. There, that's a little bit better. I know it's above. My, we're gonna look. We're looking on the right side of the screen right now. So, this drop right here, fourteen sixty five, said says, "Would you believe Hussein tried to call Kim prior to the summit? He did not have his updated phone number. North Care, North Korea generals released closed the pathway for bad actors." Q. Okay, and then. The response is out to catch the exchange, repot his private calls with Kim new number via iPhone. How did that particular senator know that kind of highly, highly classified intel? And s- someone responds, and a non on the board responds, Amanda Rinto, what's her ass? <laughs> Which is funny. Um, and Q replies, yeah, Amanda Renteria, the bridge between Loretta Lynch and HRC. All right, now this other drop, which is six drops later, it's 1556. It says, Amanda Renteria, Bridge, Loretta Lynch, and HRC, plus one, Bill Clinton, and Loretta Lynch, Tarmac meeting. And there's Tarmac. Witness. And it links to the video that that journalist took, that journalist who is now deceased, strangely, strangely deceased, It says, look close behind Bill Clinton, trusted by Clinton's running for California governor, who is funding, who is campaign manager, risk is high, Hugh. They're referring to Amanda Renteria, who ran in California or tried to run in California and got knocked out in the primaries, I believe. But I wanted to... Go and look her up right here and show y'all Amanda Renteria. Previously worked as a political aide in the roles of national political director for Hillary Clinton during her 2016 presidential run. Chief of operations for California Attorney General Xavier Becerra and chief of staff and legislative advisor to United States Senator Diane Feinstein and Debbie stabbed me now. Um, both of those people are retiring, by the way. A member of the Democratic Party, Renteria is the first Latina chief of staff in the United States Senate. Renteria has twice run for public office. 
She was the Democratic nominee for the United States House of Representatives in California's 21st district in 2014, but lost to David Valadiao or Valadiao. In 2018, she ran for governor, but did not advance to the general election. She lost in the primary. So Q says, who is campaign manager and who is funding? Talking about Amanda Renteria's run for governor. I haven't looked this up. I don't actually know who it is. So let's see if we can figure it out. Okay. It's got the Hillary on our wiki. It has the Hillary Clinton email investigation mentioned here. We might as well read it. In early March 2016, hackers working with Dutch intelligence reportedly provided a highly classified Russian document. That would be the Renteria memo. The document, which had possible translation issues, had purportedly contained a memorialization of an alleged conversation between Renteria and Loretta Lynch. One of the allegations in the document said that Renteria had been assured that Lynch would keep the Clinton investigation from going too far. Although the FBI determined that the document was not credible, then FBI Director Comey said it was one of the bricks in the load that led to his decision to not consult the Department of Justice before closing the investigation. I got to say, that is no small thing, guys. Like, it it is such a huge, huge thing that Comey did not consult with the justice department about closing the Clinton investigation and that he think about it. He kept it from the attorney general. That's how, that's how heavy he said it was one of the bricks in the load. That's how heavy the load was that deterred him from going to Loretta Lynch about the Clinton email investigation. And I feel like, like, I don't want to put words in Brian's mouth. All right. But Brian knows this. And I almost, I kind of feel like Brian is doing some kayfabe here by throwing Comey's name out because Brian knows this. Brian knows this. I don't know. I don't know how anybody, Brian knows, Brian knows that Comey's a member of the band and that Comey made sure that the Clinton email investigation didn't go to Loretta Lynch. If Comey was this swamp creature that he's alleged to be, he would have sent it to Loretta Lynch. If Comey was out to get Trump and was trying to protect Clinton, what would he do? He would give the Clinton email investigation to Loretta Lynch so Loretta Lynch could make sure it didn't go too far. And Loretta Lynch could close it, bury it, and it never come up again. But I know I've got years, I got years of programming to undo with many of y'all who have been convinced that Comey is a swamp creature. Y'all haven't figured out the kayfabe yet. Y'all haven't, y'all haven't figured out the kayfabe yet. Some of y'all have. And for those of us who have, this is a lot of fun. Um, Okay. So Renteria announced her candidacy in 2018. She finished seventh out of 27 candidates. Golly, that's a lot of candidates on the ballot. 27 candidates. She received 86,000 votes. She finished behind Newsom and Villaraigosa. Who was her...
let's see if this article tells us about a man a campaign manager. Let me see. And control F manager. No. Campaign. Renteria has been a favorite Central Valley Democrat, even drawing Vice President Joe Biden to a rally for her campaign. Yeah, one day I'm going to wear a Comey as my homie t-shirt on this show and lose half my audience. <laughs> no, it's not in that one. Okay. Let's just, let's look right here. Surely we can find some we can find something that tells us who her campaign manager was. Surely we can find something. CEO of Code for America. If anybody knows, feel free to type it in chat. I had set this aside and just decided to pull it up now and see if we can find it live on air because, you know, it's, this is a very professional show and I have everything I do on this show is very carefully planned out. After working on the Clinton campaign, Renteria was hired by Attorney General Becerra to be his chief of operations. We're sure someone has found this information before. So it exists somewhere. Campaign website didn't help. I'll spend just another minute or two on this and then we'll move on. What I want to know, what I'm curious of, is if whoever funded her campaign, right, whoever was her campaign manager. So this comment, risk is high. I'm not sure exactly how to incorporate it, but she, Amanda Renteria, was close to the Clintons, trusted enough that she allegedly got this assurance from Loretta Lynch for them, right? She did run for governor. 
I want to know who was funding and I want to know who the campaign manager was because I am interested to know if they connect back to George Soros. That's what I'm really wondering here is if Amanda Renteria's campaign connected to George Soros because she was giving assurances about Hillary Clinton to Leonard Bernardo of the George Soros Open Society Foundation. And so I'm wondering if that's the connect that's one of the connections here is that she wasn't just the bridge between Ella Loretta Lynch and HRC. She also acted as the bridge between Soros and HRC is what I'm wondering. And if they funded her California campaign, um, and if that's the case, then I'm wondering, hmm, just what documents did Durham get from the Open Society Foundation? All right, I'll dig more later and try and find it. I know the information is out there. And like any pro, I made sure to not look it up before the show. All right, what time is it? 10.50. Man, this is this has flown by. This, this show has flown by today. Probably because I was reading stuff. All right. We're going to stick with a theme. Our theme has been basically Durham type stuff this whole morning. We're going to stick with that theme. Oh, Brian Murphy says he's seeing Richard Martin as campaign manager. Let me search that real quick. Richard Martin. Richard Martin. Okay, let me see if I search. Ah. All right, I'll I'll dig later. I'll dig later. All right, I want to mention this right here from Dawson. Looks like the UK had Oleg Deripaska under surveillance in 2018 and caught him meeting McGonagall. That doesn't bode well for all of Deripaska's swampy British allies. Everyone in Spygate 2016 was working for Deripaska. And this article right here, Business Insider, which we know, we know what we get with Business Insider. But like I was talking earlier, put on your filter, 
and extract the factoids that you can dismiss the rest. In 2018, Charles McGonagall, the FBI's former New York spy chief, traveled to London where he met with a Russian contact who was under surveillance by British authorities, two U.S. intelligence sources told Insider. The British were alarmed enough by the meeting to alert the FBI's legal attache, who was stationed at the U.S. Embassy. The FBI then used the surreptitious meeting as part of their basis to open an investigation into McGonagall. Interesting. So it's been going on since 2018. Interesting. The two sources, both former officials in the U.S. intelligence community, did not specify the identity of the Russian who McGonagall met with. McGonagall, the former head of the FBI's counterintelligence division in New York, stands accused of taking money from Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch, in violation of U.S. sanctions in exchange for investigating one of Deripaska's Russian rivals. McGonagall traveled to meet Deripaska and others at Deripaska's residence in London and in Vienna, according to one of the federal indictments lodged last month. This indictment, the indictments do not say precisely when those alleged meetings took place or how the prosecutors came to believe they occurred. Your sources sound well-informed, said a third source who worked for U.S. Intelligence Committee in 2018 and was aware of communications between British intelligence officials and the U.S. Embassy in London. They declined to confirm or deny that the meeting occurred. During his years in New York, McGonagall oversaw 150 by 50 FBI agents and tasked with shadow forwarding, blah, 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 blah. Um... September 2018. Regardless of whether the meeting occurred before or after McGonagall retired from the FBI in September. Yeah, he re- he retired in September 28. That was the first question that came to mind is that if he's meeting with someone representing Deripaska, then did it happen before or after he retired? In 2014, the FBI tried to recruit Deripaska as an informant. McGonagall had investigated Russian operatives earlier in his career, but it is unclear whether he was involved in the FBI's Deripaska recruitment effort. He was stationed at Washington at that time. The McGonagall indictment state that in 2018, McGonagall had access to a classified list of Russian oligarchs who were under consideration for U.S. sanctions due to close ties to the Kremlin. Treasury Department sanctioned Deripaska in April 2018, and in 2021, the FBI raided two homes linked to Deripaska in Washington, New York. Then last year, Deripaska himself was indicted, along with his uh, financial manager here in the U.S., who Olga Shrieky, who is uh, U.S. side and will go to a trial. I haven't. I need to check her docket. I haven't checked it in a little while. All right, so it seems that McGonagall was shaking down Albanian politicians and oligarchs to keep them off of the FBI's U.S. sanction list, a list they were not on, but he made fake ones to show them. <laughs> That's right, guys. That's how the D.C. indictment that McGonagall was working for the Albanians and working against like, I mean, he was being a hitman for the Albanians getting paid. I mean, he like he was they were leaving cars with eighty thousand dollars in cash in them for McGonagall to just fine and pocket the cash as payment. He fabricated list to show that they were on sanctions list and couldn't come to U.S. And he was get, he was pretending to investigate lobbyists that the Albanians didn't like. It was really swampy. It reminds me, this is back to Dawson, 
It reminds me of how McCabe got Deripaska to pay up to $25 million to stay off that same list in 2009, allegedly to fund an effort to save former FBI agent Bob Levinson being held in Iran. In exchange, McCabe at FBI allegedly kept Deripaska off the sanctions list and helped him get U.S. visas. So, I wonder if it was McCabe who tried to recruit Deripaska later on, like the uh, Business Insider article mentioned. If you guys, everybody who's focused on Comey and thinks Comey was a Clinton ally in the FBI, one, you you like, you're so, you're so off. <laughs> you're so off. But if you really want to know who the who the Clinton's ally in the FBI was, it's McCabe. It's McCabe. Um next one. Semi-related, familiar name. A man who faced an unsubstantiated rape charge in the UK is suing to identify an unknown person who disseminated a fabricated police report about the incident. Today, a judge granted his request to subpoena Fusion GPS, which gave that document to a reporter. This is about Shervin Peshavar. He asked a court to issue two subpoenas, one to Bean LLC, also known as Fusion GPS, for use in a foreign proceeding for the following reasons. Mr. Peshavar is an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and investor who lives in San Francisco and frequently travels to the United Kingdom. He was arrested May 2017 by City of London Police in connection with a rape allegation. Finding insufficient evidence to support the allegation, police closed the investigation on the tw- July 28, 2017. But Mr. Peshavar was never charged with an offense related to May 2017 arrest. The incident none th- nevertheless attracted media attention. In June 2017, Mr. Peshavar obtained an injunction preventing the UK newspaper The Sun from naming or identifying him in relation to the arrest, on the basis that speculating about the arrest would have been a gross violation of Mr. Peshavar's privacy rights under UK law. In October 2017, reporter Marcus Barham of Fast Company magazine contacted London police to ask about a police report he had obtained naming Mr. Peshavar. Mr. Barham obtained the report from an individual in Washington, D.C., who represented that he had in turn obtained that report from, quote, a male lawyer based in the U.K., the U.K. source. The U.K. source also told Mr. Barham's contact that Mr. Peshavar had paid the rape complaint, complainant a large sum of money to drop the charges and that the police were outraged over the situation and had demanded a review of police procedures in light of the case. That police report was fake. 
the additional information shared by the UK source is false. But Fast Company nonetheless published an article about Mr. Peshavar based on the fake report and the false information. Other media outlets, including New York Post and Forbes, followed suit, releasing articles in November 2017 that referred to the contents of the fake police report. These events have led Mr. Peshavar to contemplate filing civil and criminal charges in England against the UK source, based on the source's decimation, dissemination of the fake police report and false information. So far, Mr. Peshavar's investigations have revealed that Mr. Barham received the fake police report and false information from the DC-based investigations company, Fusion GPS. Mr. Peshavar now seeks documentary and testimony, testament, testament, testamentary. Let me start again. Mr. Peshavar now seeks documentary and testamentary subpoenas requiring Fusion GPS to identify the UK source, the client who hired Fusion GPS to investigate Mr. Peshavar, and the related information. Well, that's interesting. I wonder who hired Fusion GPS to do that. I want to hit this, but there was one other thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is it. This is it right here. This will this will wrap up our Russiagate Spygate focus today, and then we'll move on to a different topic before the end of the show. I got a little extra time today because my kids are out of school. My wife is home because uh, she's off today for President's Day. So I don't have a hard stop at 1130. I can go a little bit past it. All right. I've mentioned this case before on the show. Political consultant um, Jesse R. Benton, who worked for Rand Paul's campaign um, and also Mitch McConnell. Uh, He was previously indicted for campaign finance um, crimes. Donald Trump pardoned him, and then he was indicted again for a different set of crimes, also campaign finance crimes, and he's been convicted, and he's been sentenced now. I'm going to hit Dawson's thread on this, but I noticed that when I shared this on social media, especially true social people had, there were several several people who had a reactionary uh, comment to give on it, immediately reacted to it. And then they, they deleted their comments. I want to say there were three to five comments that ended up getting deleted because people realized what was actually going on. So understanding is greater than reacting on this one. Okay. Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell advisor, Jesse Benton, has been sentenced to prison for laundering Russian money into Trump's campaign as part of a GOP effort to frame Trump for Russian collusion. That's right. This guy tried to get Russian money into Trump's campaign, which would have helped with the false allegation that there was Trump-Russia collusion, right? Swamp. This was a swamp action to try and force that. Remember, the Trump-Russia collusion allegations and the Steele dossier 
first started because of Paul Singer, McCain ally, swamp monster Paul Singer. And then the Clinton campaign took it over. But it's the swamp. It's the uniparty swamp. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. It's the same. The, the swamp is united against Trump. And they were the swamp was trying to frame Trump. Trump pardoned Benton for an earlier campaign offense, buying endorsements for Ron Paul's 2012 presidential campaign, while FBI and DOJ investigated his efforts to frame Trump. Did he try to use the Russian cash as leverage against Trump? If so, it backfired. Two weeks before the 2016 election, Benton was caught in an October surprise video offering to launder $2 million from China into a pro-Trump super PAC. In reality, the Chinese representative was working for a British newspaper. It was a sting by a newspaper. Benton and other GOP operatives got Trump to unwittingly pose with Roman Vasilenko, a Russian reserve naval officer who probably works for Russian intelligence. They set up a Trump. They set Trump up to meet a Russian spy who illegally donated to Trump's campaign. See, they wanted this right here because they could market this as see Trump Russia collusion. There's Trump meeting with a Russian spy who donated to his campaign. A perfect setup for the swamp to compromise or impeach Trump in 2017. Vasilenko met with Trump on behalf of Putin's propaganda team. They got video to use in their failed effort to compromise Trump. Weed and Benton were both indicted last year. That's right. There's another guy. It was Weed and Benton. In late August, 2016, Vasilenko was interviewed by Vladimir Solviev, a man widely recognized as one of the Kremlin's top propagandists. He is known for his nightly TV news shows in Russia where he spews pro-Kremlin talking points and makes outlandish statements. The two discussed business leadership and their fondness of the Russian military, among other subjects. Following the sit-down, Vasilenko's company signed a partnership agreement with Solov- Soloviev, demonstrating their expectation of continued cooperation. Just two weeks after that agreement between the Kremlin mouthpiece Soloviev and Vasilenko, Weed writes in an email to the Republican National Committee, quote, I have a friend who spends most of his time in the Caribbean, must be nice, right? Who has caught the Trump bug in a big way. He wants to fly in for an event, hopefully near New York or D.C., where he can attend a funder and get a photo. The photo is important to him. Is there any way you might share a list of events where a photo might be possible? Ideally, he'd like to come between 921 and 927, if at all possible. Eight days after that email, Vasilenko wired $100,000 to a company controlled by Benton, according to the indictment. Soon thereafter, Vasilenko flew to the United States and attended the Trump fundraising event with Weed and Foreign National 2, who was listed in the indictment as the interpreter. Some of the trip was documented and the video later surfaced showing Vasilenko in Washington, D.C., driving with weed at the Trump fundraiser, among other scenes. Now it gets worse. The GOP Political Action Committee and the FEC agreed to throw Benton under the bus and let the PAC escape. 
Then FEC governors appointed by the swamp refused to confirm the charges against him and let him go too. Now here's an uncomfortable truth. Jesse Benton is married to one of Ron Paul's granddaughters. But he was clearly the junior partner in this crime to his co-defendant, Doug Weed, who was a senior advisor to President George H.W. Bush. While Benton was convicted in November, Doug Weed died of a massive stroke and was taken off life support on December 10th, 2022, before his trial. Doug Weed also advised George W. Bush. Weed secretly recorded the conversations with W. without Bush's knowledge. Sounds pretty swampy. Weed helped Bush win in 2000. He was considered a Bush family insider. Then he joined Ron Paul and Rand Paul teams. I don't like that. He also made false allegations against Obama that he blamed on a misunderstanding with his source. Weed publicized the secret Bush tapes to the New York Times after Bush was inaugurated for his second term. We'd released some of the tapes, which seemed to contain lots of good oppo research material. Wonder if it implied a threat to release more to harm Bush. And thank you, Truther, for uh, tagging me in this. This one's hard for me because I really like Ron Paul and Rand Paul. I mean, I'm I'm on the the libertarian side, so I really like Ron Paul and Rand Paul, and I'm sure that most of my audience does too. And uh, that that most of y'all are like, they're some of the best people that we've had. And for a lot of people, Ron Paul's campaign is what woke you up to the Uniparty and what inspired you to get more involved in politics because it was he represented something far different from what the Uniparty offered. And so there's a level of admiration and respect and um gratitude that we have for Rand Paul and Ron Paul. And then for a lot of reasons, we love Rand Paul for being a Senator. I mean, I would definitely include Rand Paul in my top five favorite senators for sure. Top three. Um, I wouldn't include Mitch McConnell, but I would include Rand Paul. But the swamp is big and the swamp is deep. And Unfortunately, it seems that they took on a advisor who was connected to a Bushy, a Bush insider, and who had not one but two illegal campaign finance schemes that he was caught both times. One of them Trump pardoned him for while the other was investigated. And unfortunately for Ron Paul, his granddaughter married this same guy. And it really looks like what Jesse Benton was trying to do and Doug Weed. It looks like what they were trying to do was help frame Trump. Which is what which is what you would expect the swamp to do. Iowa Trump. That's right. You can't choose your family. That's right. Um, 
So how does that reflect on Rand Paul and Ron Paul? I'm not sure, guys. I'm not sure how it reflects on them. But I know how it reflects on Jesse Benton. He tried to frame Trump for collusion. And I, I had seen some people on True Social were like, well, how do you know it was the Trump campaign? It doesn't say that in the press release right here. Well, that's normal that it won't say name the campaign right here. But if you pay attention to the trial and the evidence, it there's no doubt about it. That's what it is. They were trying to put Russian money into the Trump campaign. Now, this also brings up a, something I've mentioned before that Trump and his campaign made sure to lean into it. Trump and his campaign invited accusations of collusion with Russia. I think Trump wanted it. Trump wanted to be accused of colluding with Russia. He wanted this framing. He he was the bait in the trap. He wanted all of that. And so he didn't shy away from this. Most likely Trump knew exactly who this guy was. Most likely Trump knew exactly who this guy was. He knew what this picture meant. He knew what this guy was trying to do. And he said, okay, I'll be the bait. (laughs) So like Trump invited all that so that the media would go in this campaign of educating the American people about how bad foreign influence is so that they could flip it back around on the swamp. Okay, we have one more topic to present. One more topic. And uh, guys, if you're enjoying the show, if you like what I do, the two best ways to support the show are to go to justhuman.substack.com and get a subscription. Now, you, you can go there and just get a free subscription. Everything on my Substack is free. Um, nothing I do is behind a paywall and I believe in presenting things that way that make, make everything you do free. And if people want to subscribe, they can, or if they want to buy you a cup of coffee, they can. Uh, the other way that is really good to support the show, the, the, the second best way is to go to buymeacoffee.com slash just human and keep my coffee cup filled. And I really appreciate it. I read all of these messages Y'all read, y'all leave me wonderful messages and I appreciate them very much. Um, those are the two best ways. Justhuman.substack.com and buymeacoffee.com slash justhuman. Another way that gets you something sweet in return is to go to bensonhoneyfarms.com and buy yourself a big freaking jar of honey. <coughs> and when you do, Use rep code just human. You'll get yourself some delicious honey directly from the beekeepers. It's not pasteurized. It's not superheated. It's not filtered. It's just raw freaking honey directly from your beekeeper. And it's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. It is my favorite honey. America first company, small business out of Nebraska. This is 100% raw honey. Just use rep code just human. It helps me out. It helps them out. And you get honey. And lastly, 
If you want some merch, such as a coffee cup or a shirt or a sticker or whatever, you can go to redwhiteandbourbon45.com, find my merch page, and there's a number of shirts, and the coffee mugs are great. I got to admit, the coffee cups are, I mean, I'm kind of a snob about coffee. I am a snob, not kind of. I am a snob about coffee, and these coffee cups are excellent coffee cups. But maybe you just want a sticker or you want a shirt or you want a pint glass because, you know, that's cool. I need to get myself a pint glass, actually. Uh, so those are the ways to support the show. And I appreciate it very much. Um, y'all are very generous and supportive of what I do. And it's because of that, that I can keep on doing it. Now, last topic for the show today. We talked about this some last night on defected in our first hour. That was, this was our topic was Nord Stream. So Trump shared the devolution power hour where we spent an hour or more talking about Cy Hirsch's article, reading it word for word and discussing it section by section and much more. Trump also shared this article by Lee Smith um, about a week after that. This article by Lee Smith says that Cy Hirsch made careless claims and he attacks. I'm not going to read this whole article. I like Lee Smith. Um, This is a decent article, but in my opinion, it is a weak attempt at refuting Cy Hirsch's claims because it's, I mean, I like Lee Smith, but he is more of a normie MAGA take on things. And he basically posits in here, and I don't mean any insult to his work. I don't mean to boil it down too much, but he basically says, well, Biden's not competent enough to come up with this plan. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't come up with the plan. He's just the president. He asks for a plan to be concocted and then he orders it done or not done. Um, and then he spends the rest of it just kind of bashing Lee Smith. I mean, bashing Cy Hirsch, um, the person, instead of dealing with the claims that are in Cy Hirsch's article. Um, and then he just goes on this long, monologue about Nord Stream and um, politics and doesn't actually deal with what the accusations are. So I really didn't find it all that moving um, or impressive. I, I really didn't. And, you know, Trump putting it out there, like I said, on Defected and elsewhere, is I think that Trump and Trump's team are just boosting the conversation and the discussion of whether or not the U S is responsible for the destruction of Nord Stream. This article though, much more substantial. This is by Oliver Alexander. And he titles this Blowing Holes in Seymour Hersh's Pipe Dream. 
Now, I'm going to read this to you guys, and it does get into details. And I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate this article, even though, well, I've already given my opinion, so it doesn't really matter. I gave it last time on Defected that um, he goes into the details. And to me, Cy Hirsch's substack can be true while also being inaccurate. It can be true that the U.S. and the CIA are responsible for the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines. But it can also be true that Cy Hirsch's retelling of how that came to be and how it was carried out is inaccurate. It doesn't have to be both. It doesn't have to be true and accurate. It can be true and inaccurate. And it may even be inaccurate on purpose in order to protect his sources. Um, so anyway, I want to present this article to you because I feel like that's the right thing to do after already presenting um, Cy Hirsch's article. I want to engage with this takedown of it because it is a point-by-point um, refutation of the details. And then there's a comment uh, um a long comment at the bottom that I want to give a, I want to use because it's a rebuttal of the rebuttal. So. All right. Now he says, I would like to preface this post by stating that I will not be making any conclusions on who is responsible. While I have my suspects, all publicly available information regarding the explosions is circumstantial. And there is none that conclusively point to a specific culprit that that is everything is circumstantial right now. Uh, what we can be sure of is it makes absolutely no sense for Russia to have done it. <laughs> it makes no sense for Russia to have blown up their own pipeline, which is what the media wants us to believe. All right. Seymour Hersh's recent Substack post claims to provide a highly detailed account of a covert U.S. operation to destroy the Nord Stream pipelines in order to ensure that Russia would be unable to supply Germany with Russia gas. All the information in Hirsch's post reportedly comes from a single unnamed source. All the information in Hirsch's blah, 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 I got that. When in first reading Hirsch's account of the events, the level of detail he provides could add credence to his story. Unfortunately for Hirsch's story, the high level of detail is also where the entire story begins to unravel and fall apart. It is often stated that people who lie have a tendency to add too much superfluous detail to their accounts. This attempt to cover all bases is in many cases what trips people up. That is true. Extra details add extra points of reference that can be cross-checked and examined. In Hirsch's case, this is exactly what appears to have happened. On the surface level, the level of detail checks out to laymen or people without more niche knowledge of the subject matter mentioned. When you look closer, though, the entire story begins to show massive glaring holes and specific details can be debunked. Okay. So early in Hirsch's article, he states that the secrecy of the mission, here, I'm going to, I should zoom in for you guys for any, some people like to read along. There we go. All right. Early on in Hirsch's article, he states that the secrecy of mission to destroy the pipelines was the top priority of the Biden administration. This, he states, is the reason why diver graduates from the United States Navy Experimental Diving Unit were chosen instead of SEALs or other SOCOM units. 
Doing this, Hirsch states, would bypass reporting to the operation of the operation to the members of Congress or the Gang of Eight. In Hirsch's initial story, it appears that every precaution is being taken to avoid any leaks or bring any unnecessary actors in on the mission. That is true. <clears throat> As we discussed on the Devo Power Hour, I think they're trying to avoid alerting. I mean, they're going around the military and Congress. Already in the accounts of the early top secret planning meetings between high-level U.S. military, CIA, and Biden officials, that is wrong. Between high-level U.S. military, that is wrong. Hirsch does not say the high-level U.S. military was in there. Department of Defense wasn't in there. Pentagon wasn't in there. Um, It was the Joint Chiefs of Staff who are not in the chain of command. The CIA and the Biden administration officials are Newland and Blinken. Some of the proposals seemed more akin to Tom Clancy fan fiction than plausible suggestion. The U.S. Air Force officials reportedly proposed dropping bombs with delayed fuses that could be set off. I don't know if they proposed that, but they said that was that would be the Joint Chiefs of Staff who said we can't do have this ability. Doesn't mean we should do it. One could write an entire post on the reasons why this sounds entirely made up by someone with no real grasp of what the suggestion would actually technically entail. During the supposed initial planning of this operation, from the way it is described by Hirsch and his source, it appears that the CIA and the entire interagency group were unaware of the fact that the Nord Stream pipelines were, in fact, pipelines. I am unsure as to why all the intelligence officials in the initial planning meeting for the mission felt that the only possible way to sabotage the pipeline would be at the short section directly bordering Russia instead of the large section in more favorable waters. I don't know why they think this section and this section are more favorable than this section, which is where the Baltops took place. But like the Baltops taking place, you know, Baltops took place in this section. So they chose this area because that's where it was. They had cover. As the operation commences, Hirsch states that Norway was chosen as the obvious partner. This entails bringing the Norwegian Navy and Secret Service in on the details. This is the same mission where Biden still holds secrecy as top priority and does not want the Gang of Eight or members of Congress to catch wind of the plan. During his introduction of Norway, Hirsch makes a very strange remark about NATO General Secretary Jen Stoltenberg implying that he has worked directly with the U.S. intelligence community since Vietnam. Jen Stoltenberg was born March 16, 1959. The U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War ended April 30, 1975, meaning Jen Stoltenberg had just turned 16 when Saigon fell. I doubt Jen Stoltenberger was a U.S. intelligence asset in his early teens. Right, but saying that he's been saying since the Vietnam War, like it could have begun shortly after. It's a small thing. As Hirsch's article begins to move into detailed account of the supposed operation, this is where the factually incorrect statements that can be cross-checked begin to appear. Now, this is the real refutation. Hirsch claims that the Norwegian Navy had the idea of using the annual Baltops exercise as the cover for the operation to plant explosive charges on the pipelines and then claims that the Americans had convinced the six fleet planners to add a research and development exercise to the program 
where the at-sea event would be held off the coast of Bornholm Island and involve NATO teams of divers planting mines with competing teams using the latest underwater technology to find and destroy them. Yes. There are multiple problems with this statement. Firstly, mine clearing has long been a staple of the Baltops exercises. Implying that this is something that was added as cover for this operation is honestly laughable. Secondly, the people behind this highly secret operation that cannot afford leaks had somehow convinced the Baltops planners to change the parameters of their exercise, which would have been planned far in advance of the exercise taking place. All of this either without informing them of why or by adding more people to the loop that could leak the plans. Well, the Ukrainians were added to it. So obviously they can change plans and add to it because the Ukrainians were added to it. The next major question mark comes after this description by Hirsch of how the Norwegian Navy found the right spot to sabotage the pipeline. It makes it sound like the explosions all took place in close vicinity to each other. There was, in fact, 6.17 kilometers between the two sites of the blast that caused the two leaks in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. The third blast, which caused the leak in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, was 80 kilometers away from Nord Stream 1 blast. <clears throat> so there's the island here. Nord Stream 2 is here. And Nord Stream 1, the two explosions, are right here. Immediately after this, Hirsch begins to mention some of the details of the diving, diving aspect of the operation. He starts off by mentioning that the divers would deploy off a Norwegian Alta-class mine hunter. No Alta-class minesweepers took part in Baltops 22. Okay, so there's a, there's a problem. Everything else this guy has written about so far, I can, I can kind of dismiss a bit. This right here, now we have a real problem. No Alta-class minesweepers took part in Baltops 22. One Oxoy-class minehunter, the Hanoi, did take part in the exercises, though. The two classes of ship are very similar, though not identical. Okay. So there's a, in, there's a point where you're like, okay, there's an inaccuracy, seemingly, in Hirsch's retelling of what happened, right? While this ship took part in the exercise, its positioning during the time period does not match what would be expected of a ship supporting deep-sea divers. Joe Galvin used open-source AIS data to track the Hanoi during Baltops 22. And as we, as we can see from the map in his tweet, the movements of the Hanoi are not consistent with three lengthy dives at the locations of three separate blasts. Okay. One Oxay class minesweeper, the M34 Hanoi, did track near the sites of the blast, as reported by DMA SFS, in June. But its track does not match up to what you'd expect, which would be like holding position over a site for a period of time so divers could deploy. Here I have marked the locations of the Nord Stream leaks on top of the map of Hanoi's movement during Baltops 22 that Joe Gavin posted. Note the event at its closest, the Hanoi several kilometers from the leak locations. 
So there's the path it took. There's one location that's Nord Stream 2. There's Nord Stream 1 hits. At the location of the leaks in Nord Stream 1, Hanoi never even slows down significantly. From the available information I can find, I have found no evidence that the Oxoy class can support surface-supplied mixed gas diving. Doesn't mean it can't, but he hasn't supported any information to the affirmative that it can't. This means the divers would have been required to use electronically controlled closed-circuit underwater breathing apparatuses. In his article, Hirsch states that the divers would use, they would dive with a mixture of oxygen, nitrogen, and helium streaming from their tanks. In the U.S. Navy diving manual, um, dives to the depth required for the sabotage of the pipelines are to be done using HEO2, Heliox. The manual also features a table showing the decompression times for divers during the ascent for dives to this depth. This is good research. This is this is good research here. Like this is a good refutation. For a dive of 260 FSW, assuming that the work to place the charges took somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes, the total ascent time for the divers would be between 53 and 195 minutes. So for each dive, we are looking at a dive time of between an hour and a half to four hours to complete the planting of the charges on the pipeline. Additionally, as the three explosive locations were all miles apart, they would also require at least three separate dives to accomplish the mission. According to Hirsch's source, At some point, the Americans and Norwegians decided to brief senior officials in Denmark and Sweden, quote, in general terms about the possible diving activity in the area. This I do not not in any way understand. Either the same insulated, highly secretive operation that must not have any leaks is now bringing forth further outside actors into the fold, or this means that they were just briefed that dives would be taking place. If it was the latter, then why brief them on diving activity when they had supposedly already orchestrated the entire mine-clearing part of the Baltops 22 as an excuse for the diving activity? Then Hirsch goes on to speak absolute nonsense about the U.S. having to camouflage the explosive from the Russians by adapting their salinity to that of the water. This is complete and utter, utter drivel that makes no sense at all. Russia is not conducting mine-sweeping operations in the Danish and Swedish EEZ. Even if they were, they are not going to detect what Hirsch himself described as a shape charge placed on the pipeline. The salinity aspect is just random buzzwords. Hirsch later states that the charges would be detonated by a sonar buoy. Dropped as a Norwegian Navy P-8 surveillance plane made a seemingly routine flight. There are many problems with this. Firstly, the Norwegian P-8s are operated by the Norwegian Air Force. Secondly, while they have been delivered per the link he used as a source earlier, this link forgets to mention that they won't enter service until later this year. Here I assume that Hirsch thought they were in service as they had been delivered and then proceeded to add this detail to his story without knowing that they were not yet in service. There would be nothing seemingly routine about a Norwegian P-8 dropping sono buoys just off the coast of Barnum. 
borne home. There were a few routine Norwegian Air Force P-8 training flights in the week leading up to the blast. These flights, though, all focused on the northern part of Norway, where the P-8 is scheduled to operate. Two flights were flown on September 20th in the P-8's base at Evanez Air Station by two separate P-8s. Both flights, however, were focused around training landings at the airport surrounding Evanez Air Station. None of the flights were within 1,000 kilometers of Bornholm. Again, on September 22nd, there were two routine Norwegian Air Force P-8 training flights. This time, one flew a similar path as on the 20th, while the other aircraft trained a series of landings at airports along the western coast of Norway. Again, neither aircraft was anywhere near Bornholm and the sites of the explosions. Open source ADSB exchange information also does not show any Norwegian P-8 activity on September 26th. While it is possible for aircraft to operate without showing up on ADSB, that's important. It would make little sense in this case, as Hirsch states it was from, it was meant to look like a seemingly routine flight. The location is also far away from anything that could ever be considered a seemingly routine flight by a Norwegian Air Force P-8. These aircrafts have never operated near Bornholm. The timeline for this also does not match up, as Hirsch states that after the P-8 dropped the sono buoy, quote, a few hours later, the high-explosive C-4 explosives, the high-powered C-4 explosives were triggered and three of the four pipelines were put out of commission. The first explosion was recorded at 0203 local time, meaning that there was no way for the flight to be on the 26th, as he stated, while there also being a few-hour delay on the explosives. There was one P-8 Poseidon aircraft in the vicinity of the Bornholm around the time of the explosions. This was a U.S. Navy P-8, not a Norwegian Air Force P-8. Again, though, the timeline does not match what Hirsch described. The P-8 passed over the area of the Nord Stream 2 leak almost exactly one hour after the explosion took place. The explosion happened at 0203 CEST, while the P-8 flew over at 0310 CEST. It would later return to the area and circle for several hours after the explosion took took place. The use of an American P-8 would also contradict the buildup to Hirsch's entire story, where the premise is that Biden specifically used Norwegian military assets instead of U.S. assets to avoid leaks to Congress and the Gang of Eight. Hirsch then goes on a long rant about how they had to be careful that a random noise underwater didn't trigger the explosives, which again makes little sense. This isn't the 1960s with phone freaks getting free long-distance calls using a cereal box whistle. The use of underwater acoustic control systems have long been a staple of the offshore oil industry. Acoustically controlled blowout preventers are in use in their thousands around the world. These receive acoustic control signals produced by a dunking transducer unit and open or close the hydraulic control valves based on these signals. These operate for years at a time with no risk of random underwater noise. Uh, No risk of random underwater noise triggering them. Additionally, the acoustic command unit and dunking transducer unit used to control them to depths of 5,000 meters are small enough to be carried by a single person 
There was absolutely no need to make use of a P8 deploying a sono buoy to activate the explosives. Okay, remember that. You don't need a plane. You don't need a P8 to drop a buoy. And this guy writing the rebuttal admits that. Again, Cy Hirsch's story can be true, but inaccurate. And its inaccuracies may be purposeful in order to hide and protect his sources. It also may be that his sources, there may be more than one source, but he's saying there's only one. But his source or sources may be feeding him inaccurate information that is also true overall, but includes disinformation, includes inaccuracies in order to protect those sources. Right, back to the article. Due to the exceptionally high level of secrecy for this operation, one could also ask why the U.S. chose to involve the Norwegian Navy at all, as the dives were supposedly form, performed using ECUBA gear. Any ship could have been used. Okay. This guy just undid, he just undid his refutation about the boat. Earlier, he said that he had no information that these ships the Hanoi and the Alta class could support such diving operations. But down here, he then admits that any ship could have been used. And it may be true, but inaccurate. The same question can be asked about the Norwegian air force. According to her they were used to drop a sono buoy from a P eight. Why even use an aircraft? It could have been deployed by a ship. That's right. It could have been. Seymour Hersh's story would have been a lot harder to pull apart had he decided to not had he decided to be more sparing with details instead of going into depth with meaningless details that make little sense. All right, now he includes an update, which an interview with uh, Hirsch on Democracy Now. I watched this interview; it was interesting. There's another interview that Hirsch did with Consortium News that I shared on True Social. That interview is also interesting. Um. And I got to say, when I listen, when I listen to Hirsch talk about this story, talk about his article, it does not sound to me that he's making it up as he goes. It doesn't sound like he's rehearsing. It doesn't sound like he's lying at all. It sounds to me like he's speaking from memory authoritatively and no hesitation. He's, he sound, it sounds 100% genuine. He's retelling what his sources told him. That doesn't make him a liar. He's retelling what his sources told him. After a detour on this democracy now, he talks about the Nicaraguan government. Hirsch states, it's called the Alta. The ship was there. I mean, that is just such a stupid lie when talking about the Alta. Hirsch doubles down on his statements from his original article. The last time, now this is a problem here with her, the detail in Hirsch's article. This is a real problem. The last time the Alta actively moved under its own power 
and used its AIS automatic identification system was the 9th of November, 2012. When she docked at Hawk, Hawkinsvern Naval Base for the last time, here she was moored until 29th of June, 2022. On the 29th of June, 2022, she was towed to North Scrap West AS, along with the Oxway Class M341 Kermoy to be scrapped. The ships were picked up from Hawkinsvern, Naval base by the tugs KNM Majolner or Molner and Sleptner and towed the 14 kilometers north to North Scrap West AS early on the 29th of June 2022 before the explosions they were taken um, before the ball tops, I believe. I don't, I don't remember the exact date of the ball tops. They were towed over here. They were never, they were nowhere in the area and they were scrapped. And you can see video right here. Here's the empty scrapyard, the empty. That's empty. That's full. That's the ship right there. This little thing right here. That's the ship. And then this this dry dock is emptied. And you, there's the platform where they're going to scrap the ship. There they are. <clears throat> that's them at the or that's them at the scrapyard before they're scrapped. If we argue that Hirsch misspoke, it means one of the other ships in the Alta or similar Oxoy class, we need to also look at, at the at those close. Only two Oxoy class ships and two Alta class ships are in service service with the Norwegian Navy. These are the Oxoy class ships KNM Malloy and KNM, KNM Hanoi, as well as the two Alta class ships, the KNM Otra and KNM Rama. Each of these ships can be accounted for during the period of Balt Ops 22. The KNM Hanoi took part in Balt Ops 22. Its AIS tracks for the period of the exercise show that the KNM Hanoi was never in immediate vicinity of the sites of the Nord Stream pipeline explosions. The long track without course changes next to the two NS1 leaks is consistent with the ship's reported speed. There are 62 minutes and 8.6 nautical miles between the two course changes. The tracks are also very consistent with no periods where the ship is out of contact, no evidence of any abnormal AIS activity or spoofing. Those red dots are where the explosions are, and as you can see, the ship is quite a bit of distance away from where those explosions took place. Available satellite imagery has been available has been able to corroborate parts of the KM Hanoi's AIS track, which further reduces the chance that there has been any spoofing. At six locations during Baltops 22 exercise, a ship matching the dimensions of the KNM Hanoi was pictured by satellite imagery in the exact location where AIS data showed the KM Hanoi was. There is no evidence that spoofing of the AIS data was used at any time during Baltops 22. This is satellite imagery, and if you zoom in on these, you can see the ship. The distance between the two K&M Hanoi AIS course changes by the Nord Stream 1 leak is 8.6 nautical miles. The time between points is 62 minutes. A trip out over the two leak locations would end down 
um, to the next AIS course change would be 17.1 nautical miles, which would need to be covered in 62 minutes, including the dive times, which it just doesn't matter. It doesn't add up. At this time, the Canaan and Hanoi was traveling in formation with three other NATO warships and one non-NATO warship. The Estonian Sakala, the Finnish uh, Perumpa, the Swedish Vinga, and the Dutch Wimmelstad. These ships likely would have noticed if the Hanoi had shut off HIS, AIS, and then left the formation at full speed towards the location of the Nord Stream 1 leaks. Yep. The K&M Hanoi remained in the same formation with the other NATO ships as it passed the location of the Nord Stream 2 leak. Here, the Hanoi would have only... I've only had 29 minutes to sail nautical those 20 nautical miles, including dive times. So it doesn't work. On the 14th of June, the Hanoi spent some time approximately nine nautical miles north of the Nord Stream 2 leak. As part of the exercise, again, the Hanoi spent the entire time in close proximity to other vessels that were part of the exercise. All right. The Malloy only traveled a few short trips Around Bergen during the month of June 22, no trips near Bornholm. The Otra was nowhere near Bornholm. It's up in northern Norway or west northern. Uh, yeah, Otra, that, uh, the island we're looking for is down here. The Otra is way over here. The satellite imagery that is available where the location and time of the ships coincided with the satellite pass and clear skies is consistent with AIS data. The Rama, nope, nowhere near. The above data means that every single all, every single Alta or Oxoy class ship in the Norwegian Navy was accounted was accounted for during Baltops twenty two, with none of them being in a position to have placed the explosives. Now, he says right here, since I posted my original article, I had a short email correspondence with Seymour Hirsch. Hirsch. Unfortunately, he stopped replying once I asked him about several of the above mentioned inconsistencies and factual inaccuracies. All right. I presented this to you. Because I think it's an excellent attempt at rebutting Hirsch, Hirsch's article. Taking OSINT, taking open source intelligence, um, looking at the ship's name, looking at the details that Hirsch mentioned, and seeing if they line up with satellite data, with ship tracking data, uh, with dates and times and locations. Like that's that's good investigative work to try and verify or disprove the details in Hirsch's article. Does it mean that Hirsch's article is wrong, untrue, someone's lying, whatever? No. It means that it didn't happen the way it's described in Hirsch's article. That's what it means. Now, this rebuttal from Bruce Wollman is against the rebuttal that is from Oliver Alexander. And I want to present this to you, and then I'll wrap up this whole thing. 
As to relying on Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat for a correct take on Hirsch's Syria gas attacks and his discriple poisonings, I only refer to his, Hirsch's retort, I can't be worried about a Bellingcat with its associations with certain intel agencies. I can't be concerned with what they're saying about me. If one had any familiarity, this is what Bruce Woolman right here writes, if one had any familiarity with Hirsch's investigative methodology, one would know that he doesn't write articles based on a single unnamed source. What he does, especially considering the nature of his sources, many higher up insiders, his protect, his, he protects his sources. So other sources who don't want to be named or can't afford to be named, especially since the Obama administration started the U.S. going after any national security whistleblower for prosecution, do not get even an unnamed mentioned by Hirsch. Does this method work? How many times have Hirsch's stories been proven right? How many major stories has Oliver broken? Hirsch did not state that using the Panama City's divers rather than the SEALs or SOCOM units, quote, would bypass reporting of the operation to members of Congress. He only reported that his source said that is what the planners of the mission thought. How many times in the past have national security apparatchiks believed they had deniable plausibility or a justification for a twisted interpretation of the rules or laws, and then it turned out those rationalizations didn't hold up. Alexander doesn't know one way or the other what the planners thought. As for how crazy the initial proposals, proposals may sound once subject to more thorough technical examination, does anyone need to be reminded of how many hundreds of crazy Intel ideas have surfaced in the past that even Tom Clancy wouldn't have come up with? That Hirsch's and his source's description of the operation implies that, quote, the CIA and the entire interagency group were unaware of the fact that the Nord Stream pipelines were in fact pipelines is only Alexander's opinion. And it was a silly comment for him to make, honestly. It didn't help him. That the Norwegians were chosen as a partner despite the high risk to Norwegians indicates the planners knew they were dealing with pipelines. Come on. In fact, Hirsch in an interview says if anyone wants to unpack the story, starting with people in the pipeline business would be a good place to start. <coughs> I wonder if Hirsch ever did that. It also explains why the Norwegians had to be brought into the project. After all, Norway is the most loyal of U.S. NATO allies and has the competency. The U.S. has relied on Norway for numerous other top-secret projects in the past, which usually end up leaked by the Americans, not the Norwegians. That Hirsch was not fully accurate about the Generalissimo Stoltenberg is a trivial error. Yes, Jens was only a teenager protesting the Vietnam War with his older sister's friends during the war, well documented in Norwegian media. But he also turned out to be a committed proponent of NATO as leader of the Social Democrats Youth Organization, despite claiming otherwise on his way to election to that position. He managed to almost single-handedly maneuver an overturn of the youth's org long-standing opposition of Norway out of NATO. Always willing to please the party elders, they fast-tracked him to move up and take over leadership of the party. Hirsch was also incorrect to write that Jens was anti-communist. Politically, he was not ideologically committed. 
just as ambition, um, just as just an ambitious son of the party. And he recognized fully supporting NATO as a necessary ticket to advancement. In fact, he was the first Norwegian prime minister to move Norway towards complete loyalty and subservience to the Americans. U.S. intelligence did and does completely trust him. There is nothing in the way the Baltops 22 was described by the U.S. Navy in sector trade magazines and Hirsch's article, which are fundamentally inconsistent. And it gives a link to a description. That Alexander tries to make something of this is honestly laughable without knowing whom within the Sixth Fleet and the Strike for NATO as Strike Force NATO command were informed of the requested changes. It is impossible to infer to what extent more people were brought into the loop. He's right. It might have been one. It might have been ten. Moreover, that Hirsch makes it sound like the explosions all took place in close vicinity of each other is just an interpretation of Alexander. He doesn't offer any evidence to contradict the assertion that the Norwegians located the spots to blow up the pipelines. According to the Norwegians, no Alta-class minesweeper participated in Baltops, only the Oxoy-class Hanoi. The Norwegian military failed to mention that the Alta-class and Oxoy-class ships are almost identical, while Alexander fails to mention that the main difference is that the Oxoy-class ships have an extra ROV for divers. Whether Joe Galvin's analysis of the Hanoi's movements are inconsistent with such a diving operation needs further and independent consideration. What auxiliary equipment and vehicles were used in the operation is not discussed or revealed so far. Alexander claims he found no evidence that the Oxoy class can support surface-supplied mixed gas diving. I'm not an expert, but as I understand, this requires tethered diving capabilities. Here is another Oxoy-class ship, the Kamoi, engaged in tethered diving activity. Here it is. So an identical ship supporting the exact type of diving that would be needed. I don't read, I don't read any great difficulty um, in further outfitting an Oxoy-class ship for mixed air capabilities. I don't know what Alexander's expertise in these matters are, but if he does not have the direct knowledge, then he should inform us who provided him with his talking points. Also, is his HEO2 decompression table for the older technology or the new MK29 diving equipment invented at Panama City? And it gives a link to that. Considering the detection resources the Danes and the Swedes had in the area of Bornholm, is it really surprising that top defense and intel echelons of those countries were informed in some manner of the operation? At least in the case of the Danes, they've been trusted with more secret operations. When you use expressions such as, quote, this I do not in any way understand, you are adopting a rhetorical technique or displaying your own limited comprehension abilities. Ouch. It does not matter that the Norwegian P-8s are operated by the Norwegian Air Force. They are under the command of the Norwegian Joint Headquarters located in Bado, which integrates the Air Force and Navy on maritime defense. Norwegian P-8 pilots trained all last year in the U.S. Navy in Florida. Quote, we can fly faster, higher, longer, and do air-to-air refueling. The aircraft carriers 
The aircraft carries many more sono buoys and more weapons, Lieutenant Sprott said. On board, he added, there is software light years beyond what the P-3 Orion has. And it gives a link to the article. Although the Norwegian P-8s were not put into general or routine service at the time of Baltops 22, they had been operationally tested by that time. Why not use a far more advanced plane, especially one equipped with advanced sono buoys in a top-secret important mission? Who wouldn't use them? Anderson seems more confused by the status of the Norwegian P-8s than Hirsch on his source. Open-source tracking does not tell us what the path of the plane is if its transponder is turned off, or masked, or mixed. Is it really so unusual in such a large exercise that some of the planes would not be publicly locatable? Especially if the exercise was also trying to determine Russian tracking capabilities? Would the Russians be surprised by any of this? Moreover, we know there was at least one open-source traceable P-8 in the area soon after the explosions. That plane is claimed to be American. Maybe Alexander needs to go back and do as much investigative reporting with as many well-connected sources as Hirsch. Meanwhile, I'd be quiet if I was him. Now, Brian really, really right here. This guy, Bruce, I mean, Bruce Woolman really smashed this guy. <laughs> that was a smashing of Oliver Alexander. Um, that was, a, that was, and look where he works. Insider News, Foreign Policy, Washington Post, Der Spiegel, Reuters. Okay. So, I just I just gave you guys read these counterpoints to Hirsch's article, these refutations of it, and the reason I did that is because I feel like that's the right thing to do after presenting Hirsch's article. Is I I was happy to see a rebuttal. I was happy to find a rebuttal that focused on some details that found some things that, I mean, Oliver's rebuttal does poke some holes in Hirsch's, the details of Hirsch's story, the accuracy of it. Bruce's takedown of Alexander is also convincing where it's like, Hey, okay, but it could be this. It could be that there's ways to explain it. Um, and like I said, on defected last night at the end of our presentation and going back and forth on this story. This is very much a story where you can't rely on the mainstream media to do the investigative journalism to prove it true or untrue. You have to do the research yourself. You have to think about it logically and use common sense and use discernment. Look at the details. Look at the big picture. Consider multiple possibilities and explanations. And you have to figure out for yourself what you think happened what you think is true what is false piece by piece and if you come away from it saying i don't know you also have to realize that that's okay that it's okay not to know it's okay to not be sure of what happened how could you possibly be sure how could you possibly know 100 what did or did not happen 
You can't. You can only stack up evidence one way or the other and examine it and decide how much value you place on each each factoid, each opinion, each assessment, right? That's all you can do. And you have to decide for yourself. This is truly a story where you have to figure it out and decide for yourself what you think. And you could be right, you could be wrong, and either one is okay right now. Especially since we're in a 5GW information war, and things are obfuscated on purpose, things are distorted on purpose, there's there's misinformation and disinformation included with true information all the time, and it's very, very challenging to figure this stuff out, because it's supposed to be. The truth is obscured on purpose. Especially when it comes to a covert mission to commit an act that could have triggered World War III. So, up to you guys. What I think is going on is I think Hirsch, my my personal opinion... My personal opinion is that Hirsch has more than one most Hirsch most likely has more than one source. That Hirsch's source most likely included both accurate and inaccurate information in their retelling of the story to Hirsch. And that overall the story is true, but it is not accurate. Um, I also think that it was a CIA op more than anything else. And the fact that there's some boats mentioned in the story that weren't in the location they would need to be doesn't matter that much to me because it could be they're just blaming that boat. But there was another boat that wasn't being tracked that did this, um, that carried out the operation. Um, it could be that it wasn't carried out at the time that it's alleged to have been carried out. Um, so you got to decide for yourself. I, I find Hirsch's story to be very compelling, very compelling. Um, and that's a big shift for me because I, at the beginning, as we showed in Devo Power Hour, when the um, sabotage happened, I felt like we, I said that I felt like we were being breadcrumbed into blaming the United States and that the deep state and the globalists wanted the United States blamed so that World War III could be started in order to get us into a shooting war with Russia. So I felt like the attack happened as a way to get the U.S. involved. And I blame the Ukrainians. And I'm still open to the idea that the Ukrainians actually did this. I still think it's a very strong possibility that the CIA and the Ukrainians worked together to sabotage the pipeline in order to blame the U.S. and get the U.S. involved in a shooting war with Russia. Um. 
that's slightly different from what that's significantly different from what Hirsch alleges, but it still has the factor of the CIA pulling off the sabotage. Um, I do not for a moment believe that Russia blew up their own pipeline. And of all the people that might've done it, the motivations of Ukraine and the motivations of the deep state in the U S make the most sense to me as the most I mean, what's, you have to find a motive for a crime. They have the motive. So you got to decide for yourself, guys. You got to decide for yourself. And whatever way you think, whatever you think, I mean, that's up to you to determine. This is a this is a story where that's what you got to do. And I think that's why, like I said, I'm defected last night. I think that's why Trump and Trump's team are boosting this story. And Trump hasn't said one way or the other. Don Jr. seems to indicate that he thinks the Biden admin did it. Um, there are other people associated that have boosted um, this story, and mostly from the angle of why isn't the media in the U.S. asking Joe Biden about this? Um, so, yeah, that's my take on it, and I feel like it's the right thing to do to present point and counterpoint on this article. Um, all right, guys, that's my show for today. Thank you very much. I can hear that my kids are upstairs running around. I don't know if you guys can hear it, uh, but I can. So that is the show. Thank you guys very much. The links to support the show are in the description on rumble. If you enjoyed it, please hit the thumbs up button. And that helps me out over there over on Foxhole. Thank you guys very much. And yeah, I, filter dog. Yep. The story is true, but not completely accurate. Um, I think that's a very reasonable take. Um, y'all have a great Monday. It's a new crazy week. Remember, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. God bless each and every one of you. I'll see you Wednesday.